Well, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Um, our next session, really continuing this uh, theme about what Singapore not only has been and is, but what it might become. Uh, we're privileged to have Professor Gerhard Schmidt uh, from ETH uh, to talk to us now. Now, Gerhard Schmidt's um, special subject um, is information architecture. And I think this is best described as, um, this is sort of two generations on from computer-aided design. Uh, it's using uh, the power uh, of computers uh, to uh, work out and assess uh, quite different territories in the world of the built environment uh, than the, the sort of simple, simple form making that was the characteristic of, of CAD um, 30 years ago. And what's particularly interesting and relevant uh, to, to, to today's event is the work that ETH has been doing in respect of the extension to which cities, and in particular uh, Singapore, where ETH has a significant presence, uh, could become zero carbon. Now, this, the, 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 the kind of holy grail uh, of zero carbon cities has been explored in different parts of the world, most obviously recently in the, in the big experimental project of Mazda uh, in Abu Dhabi. By definition, it's easier said than done. The interesting thing, I think, about Professor Schmidt's work here in Singapore is that it's taking an existing, pretty dense urban form um, so we're talking not about um, an experimental new field, but about retrofitting, not simply a building, not simply a street, not simply a quarter, but retrofitting an entire urban environment uh, in a way which aspires uh, to that notion of zero carbon, which by common consent uh, is something we need to be doing, whatever mitigation uh, uh, strategies we're adopting in respect of climate change. So I think it's going to be an intriguing presentation. Please welcome Gerhard Schmidt. Thank you very much, Paul, for the introduction, and welcome um, to our talk here on Cooler Karma Singapore. Singapore is a cool city in many aspects, but in terms of temperature, anyone coming from the airport knows that it is uh, also quite hot. This is the truth for most tropical cities, that they could be cooler, could be calmer, and could be less polluted in the future. They suffer from what is called the urban heat island effect that is theoretical to most of the people who live in the cooler climates of this world, but it's very true in every climate, just in the cooler climates, we find it comfortable in winter that it's a bit warmer, but the more you move to the tropics, the more detrimental it can be in many aspects. These uh, tropical cities also often suffer from increasing noise and from ubiquitous pollution, and people Cook just showed some examples before of cities here in the vicinity which um, suffer from this very much. Our question is, in Singapore, since we founded the Future Cities Laboratory here in Singapore um, under the auspices of the National Research Foundation five years ago, is it possible to reverse this development? Is it possible 
to reverse or inverse the urban heat island effect to a degree that it becomes more comfortable, again, to live in the outside of the buildings. We think so, and uh, we design scenarios towards this goal, the tropical ideal city. And this is in continuation, I would say, to Lukai Kerr's vision that he gave before, and uh, also I return to this in the end. This is the content, a um, few facts at the beginning, then in terms of understanding, how far do we understand cities, then in terms of design, what can we do from the design side, and then in terms of mindfulness, what makes sense in the future to convert existing cities towards a cooler and calmer future in the tropics. The motivation for our work, the big picture, that's why we came here in the first place, is that we saw that in the next years, and Liu Taika referred to that as well, that nine United States have to be built in the next years in this region, including Africa, of course. That in the next 30 years, urban living and working space for more than two billion people is necessary, mostly in tropical and subtropical regions. And the present way that we build cities does just not scale. And if you continue to build cities in the way we did, it will really lead to the next catastrophe in terms of climate. It would reduce the quality of life in the cities dramatically. It would increase the stress of the people living there also significantly. A few facts. In the tropical cities over the last 35 years, and this confirms uh, or refers partially also to Singapore, temperature has been rising quite a bit and it's not just the so-called global temperature increase. Noise has definitely increased in the city. There's been more flooding or more downpours in Singapore. And density has increased and will continue to increase. And we think that these things are related. We have a look at Singapore, this uh, wonderful tropical island. And I put two circles around two places. One is in the reservoir in the center of the city and center of the island, where uh, temperature, that is one particular day in June, but it's pretty typical, at night, 10 p.m., is 26.3 degrees, quite comfortable for conditions here, whereas in the area closer to downtown, to the CBD, it's 31.2 degrees, so a bit difference of more than five degrees. And then the next morning, um, very early in the morning, it's about the same temperature in the reservoir area, and it's only 29.7 degrees uh, in the more built-over places. And this is quite typical for many cities in the tropics, for many cities actually in the world, where this urban heat island effect can be seen from the surroundings of the city, heat going up to a high degree, and then depending on the climate they are in, the heat goes down overnight, or it doesn't like here. This is the numerical representation. You see the curves, the green and the red and the dark blue one at the bottom from 1960s, 1950s to today. And what you see at the three bottom curves, these are the temperatures on the equator and slightly north and slightly south of the equator, the ambient temperatures in the whole region. And then on top of this, you see the temperature in Singapore 
the main mean temperature in Singapore. And you see that since the 1980s about, it's starting to take off and it's significantly higher than in the surroundings. That is not a surprise, but we think uh, we want to look for the reasons for that because these reasons are similar in many other tropical cities. These are some facts about the noise levels. The noise levels, they might be uncomfortable for some people, but we know very precisely by now that noise levels above 65 dBA over a prolonged period of time will have quite adverse health effects and we're getting quite close in many parts of the tropical cities to that limit. And in addition to that, and this is really surprising, the noise level, these are noise levels measured um, by students um, in Singapore, um, is not significantly different in the lower parts of a high-rise building, in the middle part or in the top part of a high-rise building. So it's a lot of ambient noise that is increasing. And also the, the downpours, the frequency and intensity of the downpours has increased over the last 30 years quite a bit, um, so by, by 30%. And finally also the pollution, maybe the pollution that we don't see. In many cities we don't see the pollution. It's not just the haze which is uh, visible and, and can be felt quite well. The pollution in many parts of the cities is increasing uh, dramatically as well. So, looking at all of this, for Singapore, we thought we would put some very high goals for the next years until 20 years to come. Uh, we have heard Singapore will increase in density, it will increase in population, it will increase in attractivity, and uh, we could make it even more attractive if we could be able to lower the temperature, the ambient temperature of the entire island by about five degrees, would bring it back to the levels it was before, um, this very heavy industrialization, and it would also decrease the noise level. That also would then, in terms um, of uh, rain, uh, reduce the downpours, and I think, I'm pretty sure, it would increase the quality of life. And these are all things that are very uh, close to our heart and very close to our research. In order to do that, these goals might seem very crazy, and unachievable. But if you look into the mechanics, how this increase came about, that from this we might learn also how to inverse this, this situation. We do this research, it was mentioned before, in the ETH Future Cities Laboratory here in Singapore. And this is a, a large center. It's established in 2010 in association with Singapore's National Research Foundation, NRF. And we work together with many of the agencies here in Singapore, of course, the URA, the LTA, and HDB, and other agencies. It's situated in the new Crate campus here in Singapore of the NRF, next to the National University of Singapore. And the platform uh, has two big projects as of now. One is the Future Cities Laboratory, and the other one is the Future Resilient Systems. These two are working together, and their aim is to increase the resilience, of course, and deliverability of um, Singapore and other cities in the part of the world where the population is growing fastest. You take care, mentioned before the, the organs that the city have. We take the same picture. We look at the city as a, having a metabolism, urban metabolism, and we understand the city as a dynamic and complex system. It's not just a thing, a built-up environment. 
It's a system that is interacting in its part very complicated. And we read and model the system in terms of stocks and flows. And we recognize these stocks and flows as basic elements of the urban metabolism and as locally available resources so that we don't have to import a lot and throw away a lot, but we can recycle and reuse basically everything that's coming into the city. So in the future, there will be no waste. To give you a better understanding of what these stocks and flows might be, the most important stocks and flows is, of course, the people. People and health. People come into the city. In Singapore, the numbers were given from 1.65 million in the 1960s to now more than 5 million people. And the health of these people is the most important um, stock and flow in a city. But there's also the stock and flow of water and capital. Water was mentioned before. It's a huge value in a city like Singapore and other tropical cities because of its scarcity. Um, I make many comparisons between Switzerland, where I'm coming from, and ETH, and Singapore, because both countries are competing for the top spot in terms of innovation and capabilities to um, innovate and educate. And uh, therefore, a few comparisons you will see throughout my talk. So this is a, a lake in Switzerland, actually, a water lake, which is frozen in winter. And it's both a stock of water for drinking water, but also a stock of energy, because it's used as a dam to produce electricity, and a stock of capital, because you can also make money with that. The water, stocks and flows of water, uh, this is an example from Jakarta, which was mentioned before as well. It can be a threat like in this case for many people through flooding, but it can also be a big advantage like it's been uh, used in, in Singapore. Another set of stocks and flows is energy and materials. Here we see an example from Zurich going back from steel and glass to wood and concrete and glass by Schieberoban, one of the modern buildings in, uh, in Zurich for media. Um, reusing wood in a completely new way. And in terms of energy, um, our way to deal with energy today is quite uh, peculiar because from it starts to change the character of the buildings quite significantly. And energy is not something that is growing normally in a country itself. There's nothing wrong with importing energy from other countries, nothing wrong with importing electricity from other countries. Uh, here you see Switzerland in the center of Europe, Switzerland acting and being treated sometimes like an island, like Singapore, but they import most of the energy from the outside, although they can produce most of the energy also on the inside. So it's a give and take and a huge exchange of energy inflow and outflow, importing energy from Germany into Switzerland, sending it out at other times to Italy, importing it from France, from Austria, exporting it to Italy. So this is a very, very active way. And you can see really the stock and flow of energy in a country is very important. The stock and flow of uh, material, um, here is an example from Singapore. We saw the Rochor district, and on the left side, you see Rochor in 1850, 1850s, and then you see the density is increasing every year until the 1970s. Then through the development, again, that Utah Care showed, um, taking off many of the buildings, replacing them with, with tall buildings with higher density, preserving certain other buildings, 
density and the flow of materials changed a bit. So the message I want to, to show with this is it is material and even land as a very important material is nothing static, it's dynamic, it is a flow over time. And this time can be very short as we can see in all these new cities. A fourth group of stocks and flows is space and density. Density is increasing almost everywhere and dense uh, and space is very scarce. Um, we have a lot of treatment or dealing with this um, aspect. Here's a comparison from my colleague Kes Christiansen in different parts of um, the world, Singapore, Shanghai, Shenzhen and Bangkok, how the same size of city is in terms of density, in terms of uh, use and how it has been dealt with. And of course, we can do that in all places um, of the world. A last stock and flow I want to uh, quickly touch upon is transportation and information. Transportation, every city knows, every city complains, every citizen complains about. And information is recently becoming more and more known as a stock. Everybody knows or uh, begins to know about data, about big data, about the huge mass of data that are coming into existence that are being used, that have to be stored in stocks and then made useful in terms of flows for other purposes. So these are new stocks and flows. Here an example from our colleague uh, Kai Axhausen here at the Future Cities Lab, simulating the entire transportation system of Singapore to test if a different um, type of uh, transportation system, a different type of uh, pricing, transportation pricing would help to release some of the traffic jams and so on. But also, information is very important to simulate and to visualize. Um, here's a visualization of not Singapore, not Jakarta, not another high-rise city. This is a simulation of Zurich. Um, Zurich, but not the buildings but the CO2 emissions and the use of energy in each one of these buildings. And the buildings themselves you see very flat on the ground in, in gray. And this is a part of an effort, a long-term, large-scale effort of Zurich um, for 100 years to make Zurich an entirely uh, CO2-free, emission-free city of the future. So there are some very strong similarities with uh, plans here and other places in the, in the world. So these were a few ideas for the stocks and flows, how to model a city, to understand the city, where does the heat come from, and where could it go. Now this is um, the third part, this is the uh, design part, to deliver and to make some scenarios to reduce urban heat, noise, and pollution. Now that we know where they're coming from, what can we do with it? First of all, we have to understand um, how much energy is going into a city. If we want to reduce the heat and the noise, we have to look at the amount of energy that's going into a city. On the left side, you see the energy demand, and on the right side, you say, uh, on the left side, you see the energy supply, and on the right side, you see the energy demand in terms of, at the top, uh, different uh, features. You see housing, you see industry, you see commercial, and you see transportation. These are the uh, fields from the top right. This is the example of Switzerland. And the interesting part about Switzerland and Singapore is that per person, 
one Swiss person, one Singaporean person use almost exactly the same amount of energy um, per year, but they use it in very different ways. In Switzerland, you can see that the biggest part of energy used or wasted, I should better say, is in terms of personal transportation. This is the big red bar at the lower right. And then the second biggest is the houses, and the third biggest is industry with less than 20%. On the left-hand side, you see what kind of energy is coming in. The red part is crude oil, the orange part is oil, the yellow part is natural gas, the green is nuclear power, and the blue is water. And you see that all the heat released in the conversion from nuclear um, power into electricity is released into the environment, which is not a big problem in Switzerland, as it is a very cool country. And, um, uh, but it would be a big local heat input in a tropical country, of course. Now let's have a look at Singapore. And we have a completely different picture. We have um, very strong input from oil, of course, and natural gas, which is supplying most of the um, energy into Singapore. And on the right side, you see the demand. And you see the particularly small amount of energy really used percentage-wise um, in the top, which is the housing for all the more than 5 million people. Then the largest part in terms of um, energy in industry, almost 60%. Then the next one from the top is commercial with 11%, and below that, um, transportation and personal transportation with 21%. So this is a completely different picture, but remember, per person, it's the same amount of energy both countries use. So the facts about Singapore, Kula Kama Singapore, if we look at the contribution to the heat flux, it's industry first, then transportation, and then buildings, including commercial and others. And of course, the existing urban planning model could do a lot to shift or to release some of these um, um, facts. Also something to remember, and this always amazes me, if you know Switzerland, maybe you know Lake Geneva, a beautiful lake, and um, when you think of the size of Singapore, it's about the size of Lake Geneva. And if you think that you would release 80% of all energy produced in Switzerland on Lake Geneva, you see a reason maybe why it is getting hotter in many places, not only in Singapore, but others. If you have concentrated release of energy, um, that makes um, a lot of impact on the local environment. Now, if you go one step further and look at the numbers, the energy demand, as you can see on the left, is all together in Singapore. That was the numbers from a couple of years ago, about 530,000 terajoule. And I only highlighted three that I want to focus on. One is transportation, one is buildings, and one is electricity generation. And if we very roughly, and this is really speculation, this is our assumption or our possible uh, working hypothesis, relate that to the heat island effect, to the urban heat island effect. Because the urban heat island effect is something uh, between 5 and 7 degrees, uh, we can almost relate it one-to-one -to, -one to the energy input from these different fields. So transportation itself, if we would take out all transportation, um, some simulation that we did already together with MIT, who is also in the Create campus, showed that that would reduce temperature possibly by one and a half to two degrees, maybe even more. But of course, it's unrealistic. You cannot take out all 
um, transportation, but you can do something else. All the buildings, surprisingly, would have relatively little effect. The biggest effect, of course, would be industry. And the electricity generation alone also would be in the uh, area of one um, degree. Let's have a closer look at this to understand it a bit better. Here, a picture from uh, Zurich, the opera, a big, big squ uh, square in front of it. And you see this funny looking mountain on the left. This is a mountain of wood with a, um, it's not Santa Claus, it's an iceman, a snowman that's been burned every year um, at the end of the winter to signify that spring is coming. So people are standing around of this, and then the fire is lit, and this whole thing starts to burn, and everybody feels, of course, it's getting hot, even far away from this thing. Eventually, when the thing explodes, then people know the winter is over and summer is coming. But below that is, of course, the, the formulas, how this whole energy is converted into heat. And this is what's interesting um, for us here. So in the past, we were looking mostly at the total climate in a country or in a city. Uh, we had the insulation, the sunshine coming, on, coming in, uh, the natural causes. And uh, we thought there was a causality with the urban heat island effect because the city is denser, the city is rough, uh, there's maybe not so much wind and so on. But what we didn't understand so much is that there is also an anthropogenic a cultural cause that there is a causality between what we input in terms of energy into a city and the temperature, the noise, and the pollution of a city. This interdependence is what is interesting, and the interdependence, I think, is what we need to understand in order to decouple um, the heat island or to inverse the heat island effect. We just look at now some of these scenarios, the electricity generation from natural gas. We know today that is a lot of um, energy needed, and you can see all the places where it is needed in transportation, in the factories, of course, in the lighting, in the process heat, and so on. And we can do a lot uh, in improving individually these parts. But it also might be necessary to remove this energy generation from the place where it is now and move it somewhere else. Maybe in the best way, of course, two places where we don't have people living, but outside of the city. Then the buildings. Um, everybody who I talk to first says when we talk about urban heat island effect, yeah, it's all the air conditioning in these buildings. It's surprisingly little, even if you add all the commercial buildings um, to it. Um, but maybe to understand it, we have to look at these effects. Here's a typical site of um, uh, housing development of um, HDB. From the plan, it looks fairly normal. Then in terms of the artist's rendering of the proposed building, it looks like this. But in reality, it's a very, very dense environment where you have air conditioners in every floor stacked on top of each other, as you can see on the left side. And it creates really a local heat source. And the heat source is quite significant. You cannot probably read those bars. But if you look at the size of one square meter, on the left side, you have per square meters of certain HDBs buildings. And you can see the height of the left bars, the gray bars. On the right side, you have the insulation. That means the energy coming in from the sun. Uh, Berlin, Munich, Singapore, Rome, Addis Abeba. And Singapore, you have in the middle, yellow bar on the right. 
And you can see that these buildings per square meter when they are standing there are almost as much or even more than the insulation coming in. So we have, in fact, per square meters in those places almost two uh, suns. This is made up of air conditioning, of course, but also in terms of elevators, all electric and um, gas used in those, in those uh, cities, in these buildings. And in nature, uh, this is um, leading a very known, uh, well-known effect. Um, actually, when bees are being attacked by hornets, uh, they surround the hornets and they just become very dense and actually are able to uh, mute or, or kill the, the hornet. So this heat effect is, can be quite intense. Last example, transportation. Transportation um, is a problem everywhere, but here we thought we have to make a special effort. Because in our studies we found out that very little is understood actually how the heat from the car gets to the floor, to the street, what happens afterwards, where does it go, into the buildings and so on. And some very, very basic research is um, to be done in this aspect. How it finally goes into the buildings, are the trees helping that are surrounding the buildings or not. So this um, is very specific work we did and will do with the um, Technical University of Munich, also in the CREATE campus, because we know switching to, uh, for example, electric cars will eliminate most of the heat and the noise and the pollution from 820,000 vehicles running through the city. And this is not an impossible dream. We think that Singapore could be the first island or city or country in the world really to go fully electric and this way reducing its heat, its pollution, its noise and increasing uh, quality of life. But before we do that, we really have to look at it in very, very careful detail. We defined few areas of the city where this detailed research is already ongoing and also with the car industry to really understand how the heat, the noise and so on is transmitted from the engine to the street, from the street to the surroundings. And this is um, very, very um, small, if you want, analysis, but it's necessary to understand, otherwise we make big mistakes when we scale it to the city. So this will hopefully help us to understand this effect from the street to the city and eventually also to the local climate zone because we know that the local climate zone exists in Hong Kong, in Singapore, in other tropical cities that do change the local weather. Okay, the last um, part is that um, we have seen in other places and also in, in Switzerland, which is the country of direct democracy. Um, you cannot do anything without uh, people voting on it. Yutai Kerr showed very nicely this diagram where uh, the role of the government in Singapore, the role of the government in other places. People talk a lot before decisions are being made and many, many discussions are led before something is, is decided. But in the long run, uh, this is a very uh, stable, very resilient um, system. And um, it is very helpful to involve um, people. Sometimes people can be wrong or they cannot know enough. We have very significant, terrible examples for that in the past. Um, many of you know the city of Pompeii. We only know it today because it was destroyed and covered under 12 meters of ash. But at this time when this happened, um, 79 uh, of the uh, present time, you see the Vesuvius mountain in the back. Um, there was a big earthquake. 
the fountains in the city didn't work anymore. People had warnings of this, but they had not enough knowledge to really understand what was going on. And um, they had very highly sophisticated art. They even had perspective and other things that were rediscovered many years later. But it didn't stop them, and they had extremely sophisticated heating and cooling systems built into their building. These hippocausten, even wall heating and wall cooling systems 2,000 years ago, quite sophisticated, but it didn't help because they didn't understand the, the whole system. They didn't run away, walk away when the first signs of this explosion were coming and the result, as terrible as it is, was that, that more than uh, 12, probably 16,000 people were um, killed. And they are reminding us today of um, how to use knowledge in a more meaningful way um, than in the past. In order to do so, we have a big project in this Future Cities Laboratory we call Responsive Cities. Uh, many of you heard about smart cities. Many cities want to be smart. The smart cities ideas um, originated from industry to supply city governments with um, control, with sensors, with data, how the city is running. But very quickly there was a, not a counter movement, but a supplementary movement to add responsiveness to the city. That means the people of the city take these data also in their own hand, they interpret it in their own way, and they give uh, advice back to the city. So this responsive city scenario we want to explore here in Singapore. We have a lot of input, of course, from people through crowdsourcing that we already are doing. This is very um, helpful, but also through urban sensing that we can sense how people feel in particular parts of the city um, through physiology and psychology um, um, uh, research. And we have a correlation of space properties with emotional response, which is very, very important, especially in cities that are dense and high like Singapore, that are really three-dimensional and not just planes that you move through. So this is a very important um, aspect of these responsive cities that we get from people what they want. An example from Switzerland in terms of responsive city, responsive country, um, the people in Switzerland really want to go away from the pollution, from uh, the heat, if you want, from the noise, and they um, created what is called the 2000 Watt Society, that they want to reduce their energy use and their energy um, waste, and they want to make better use of energy by creating very large um, intelligent grids, smart grids in the country, like it is tested in many places in the world, also here in Singapore. But in, in Switzerland, it has gone a very long way already, and also they have uh, made their energy strategy for 2050 to uh, go almost completely towards renewables to replace the entire nuclear power that they have now, which is 40% of all electricity generation with renewables. And this is done by the people themselves. It's not a big government program. There is no subsidies to do that, but it's the people themselves deciding to do that. And just to show uh, the good news is that the energy supply in the country is also a stock and flow. It's changing very quickly. We always think it has been like this forever, but it changes very quickly. If you look to the 1960s, 70s, 2000, 2010, 2020 in Switzerland, we see a complete shift of energy um, demand and energy supply. 
and um, it will work because people themselves are supporting this idea. They invest money themselves to, um, to do that. And here you can see this development. Hydro at the bottom is still the most important f uh, source of power in Switzerland. Additional hydro will come on in a few years. And then you see the new renewables. This is solar and wind uh, taking the biggest uh, part of it and just a little bit of gas-fired electricity imports at the top. So with this strategy, um, Switzerland will be completely CO2-free in its generation of electricity and power. And this is necessary because the clean air, the coolness and these parts of the country are important for the survival of the country. Nobody would want to go to Switzerland if the rivers were dirty, if the air was not clean. Uh, so this is a really, really life-saving uh, features for Switzerland. And we think these things we can also see, could see in other countries. We try to um, make this known. Uh, we have here at the Singapore ETH Center and the Future Cities Laboratory a large group of faculty and students from all over the world, from Singapore universities, from Singapore colleges who come in as interns. It's a great cooperation. And many of these contents we decided to make known to the world, the so-called uh, massive open online courses. And we have these MOOCs. Um, started these MOOCs and we have many, many people in those already, thousands, 40, 50,000. Um, we had two MOOCs uh, done already. The second one is running now. The first one was on livable cities and these livable cities, um, the content was produced here in Singapore, in ETH, in Zurich, and then put and packed into the MOOC and then broadcasted to the world. We noticed very quickly that people in the world taking this MOOC, the first one was taken by more than 30,000 people, and they started to form little groups and gave us feedback, what they observed, which was the same or different from here. And that was very, very interesting because it started to be a whole community. Suddenly, the one-way communication or broadcasting turned into two-way communication. But we found we have by far too few teachers uh, to do that. So we decided for the next MOOC on responsive cities, we will use all of our students in Singapore and in Zurich to be the tutors of the students outside in the world. And that will create a completely new setup for MOOCs and for civic engagement. <clears throat> the results of these MOOCs have been very interesting because people sending back pictures from their situations where they live, how they want to improve their city, uh, exactly in those topics that I mentioned, the noise, the heat, the traffic, and so on. And the images are so interesting that they were chosen by artists to be incorporated into an exhibition. This is a picture from Zurich, from the Museum of Contemporary Art, and uh, turned into a game where you can recognize the city and also make improvements to the city and uh, suggestions. So it's taking off as a game, as an internet uh, game, and as a very um, uh, focused instructional unit in terms of the massive open online courses. But this is the one side, this is the theoretical part. On the practical side, this is also important. An example from Switzerland, again, that people taking it in their own hands to make a cooler and calmer, less polluted environment. Uh, people installing, for example, photovoltaics here um, as individuals, they make a lot of energy with this. They f use the energy in their own house or they feed it back into the smart grid. They make competitions amongst each other, many people working together, uh, seeing how much energy everybody can produce. And 
they produce it on a large style. This, for example, is a, a farmer uh, covering his entire new barn with uh, photovoltaics. And in the background on the left, you see a bio plant where he uses uh, biogas to make electricity. So making electricity for more than, um, in this case, more than 100 households. So you can see that also not only in the city, but in the countryside, uh, people are really taking it to their own hand. It is, a, uh, it is a business, has become a very big business. And we can see already that this whole development of making a cleaner, cooler, and calmer environment will be one of the largest businesses um, in the world in the future. So let me come to the end, to the scenarios. In the next 20 years, I think it is necessary to increase the energy efficiency of industry or even change some of the industry. In Switzerland, less than 20% of the energy is used in, in industry, but the production per person in terms of industry is still higher than here or in other countries. The electrification of transportation, I think, is, is a must in very dense situations like this. And it is not impossible at all, as we can see uh, in many places. The increase of the efficiency of buildings is also very, very important. This is, of course, where architecture um, design is uh, called upon. Um, but there are also some planning issues, and that's where it comes back to Liu Taikere when he was talking about intelligent planning to achieve all of the above. Um, the decentralization and outsourcing of production of electricity is one of the most important things. And then intelligent planning of the entire city, making scenarios and calculating, simulating how to get there. Last point, conclusions. It's a fact that we are close to being able to explain and simulate the urban heat, noise and pollution island effects. For the first time, with the computer power, we can really simulate and see where these effects are coming from and where they will lead to if we don't do anything about it. Then it's important that we have design capabilities to design and simulate paths from the present situation using big data and everything we have towards scenarios with lower temperature, about five degrees lower temperature, less noise, less pollution, and higher quality of life. We have to take actions because after extensive research, Integrated changes in industry, in transportation, in power generation, and in buildings are necessary. And in terms of mindfulness, um, we have to look again at what Lutake has said in the beginning. The good governance is extremely important, but also the citizen participation in a new way, because we have new ways of citizen participation now. They are key and will help to achieve a cooler, calmer Singapore and cooler and calmer tropical cities in general. Thank you for your attention. Well, Professor Smith, there were so many interesting ideas in there. I wonder if I could ask you just a, a follow-up one or two things. Because my first question is, um, you gave some interesting comparisons with Switzerland. I'm wondering just how different tropical cities are uh, to, to, to cities in the West. Um, are, are they fundamentally different or fundamentally the same? They are, might not look very different, but they're fundamentally different in their urban metabolism. That means in the western cities, in the northern cities, uh, the majority of all the energy goes into heating buildings. This is just unthinkable for the tropics. There's none of this. 
That is, that is probably the most, uh, the biggest difference. And then, of course, also the transportation. There's already a higher degree of um, public transportation and also individual non-car transportation developing in the northern cities, at least, of Europe. Um, so this is a, a, another difference. But is it the case that, okay, it's, it's heating in one place and cooling in another, but actually the thinking about the strategies about how to cope with that have a lot in common? They have a lot in common if you, if you consider those fundamental uh, differences because um, you can, the building that is made for a cold country should not look like a building for a, cool, uh, for a hot country. And unfortunately, in many places of the world, even in the tropics, that's still the case. So that's where it starts. But as we see the buildings, unfortunately, as an architect, I would say it would be nice if 90% of the heat island effect was coming from buildings. Um, it is not so. There's other forces, the infrastructure, transportation, uh, energy generation, which is radically different in the countries in the north, in the, in the west, and uh, tropical countries. But there are tropical countries of countries around the equator or cities around the equator where you would need almost no additional energy for a perfect climate like Addis Ababa, uh, cl very close to the equator but in a high altitude so with a relatively constant temperature throughout the year. So with very, very little um, with smart architecture you could do almost a zero energy uh, city, no heating, no cooling needed. That would be the perfect situation. Just one question about um, decentralizing energy. I know in, in London, for example, um, we're all being told that you need to create district heating and en energy centers, which are part of big developments rather than decentralizing it. Would that be another uh, uh, factor in relation to tropical cities, or is this a more general point? Yeah, um, of course, no heating. It would be then district cooling, which is also happening, for example, in a new create campus of um, the NRF, there's district cooling uh, situation, which is quite good, and you can use the same thing. But for example, burning so-called waste in the middle of the city, as it's still done in Zurich to create district heating warmth, is totally unthinkable, or should be totally unthinkable in a tropical city, yet cities like Hong Kong uh, start to adopt this, this uh, scheme as well. So these are things that make sense in the north, but not here. And the treatment of, of waste and uh, materials at all, Singapore is fantastic in the use and reuse of water. I think there's no other city that does it in, to such consequence. But it's not only water, it could be any material um, that should be reused, like in Singapore, also reuse of concrete to make new concrete buildings, uh, you know, to, to counterbalance the scarcity of sand, makes a lot of sense for economic reasons, also for ecological reasons. Uh, well, I think it was a fascinating talk, um, and I think I've, we've had a good demonstration of the way that information architecture can take simulation which would have been impossible to do in such a sophisticated way, certainly when Singapore was being planned. It can then be visualized, but the payoff is that what that allows is interaction between users or organizations or indeed governments in relation to their strategies. And I think this, actually going back to an old 60s idea about complexity, I think what you've given us um, is an example of complex thinking, 
which is now possible to translate into some very simple actions at a human stage, uh, as well as actions uh, in respect of governance. So, Professor Gerhard Schmidt, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.